I'm Jonathan Goldstein, host of Wiretap. Each week you're invited to listen in on my telephone conversations, whether funny, sad, wistful, or even slightly strange. You never know just what you might hear on Wiretap. Uh, I mean, I knew you had a show. I just, I just didn't think that people actually listened to it. Howard, That's you... the breath of your genius, Jonathan. It's not just that you're funny, but you can be cripplingly, poignantly depressing. The Wiretap Archives, available on CBC Listen, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and wherever you get your podcasts. This is a CBC Podcast. It's April 25th, 2007, and Carol Off, the host of CBC Radio's As It Happens, is on the phone with a famous mentalist, kind of like a mind reader. His name, The Amazing Kreskin. Carol and Kreskin are just finishing an interview, but Carol has one last question. All right, now listen, just quickly before we go, do you see anything for As It Happens in the future? Oh, I have a feeling this program is going to continue for a long, long time. And am I still going to be here? In oh, time? yes. Are you kidding me? In fact, can I say this? And you got to better keep this in to the listeners. Just if I me. get into town again, and I, I get, I, I, I'll come over to the station on the air live, I'm going to read your thoughts on the air. That's going to be interesting to the listeners. That's crazy. <laughs> Turns out it wasn't so crazy. Two years later, on May 19th, 2009, As It Happens was still on the air and Carol was still hosting. Though it's maybe not too hard to make that prediction. And the amazing Kreskin came into studio that day, in person, to make good on his promise to read Carol's thoughts. I want you to imagine, Carol, that you're going into a square here, a park here in Toronto, but it's a very foggy day where the fog is rolling down, kind of getting a feel of that. Now, there's a clock that was put in the town, in the city, a few days earlier. The clock trick, one of Kreskin's favorites. By this point, the amazing Kreskin had performed all over the world. In the 1970s, he had his own TV series that was broadcast across Canada and syndicated in the U.S., He's made hundreds of talk show appearances with the likes of Johnny Carson, David Letterman, Howard Stern, Jimmy Fallon. Whether you believe in mentalism or not, there's one thing that can definitely be said about this guy. Preskin can work a room. Reading Carol's thoughts that day was the grand finale of the interview. The demonstration involved Preskin's watch and Carol's mind. When I say now, Carol, I'm going to keep talking I want you to count the number of times in your mind the clock rings the hour so you know what time it is, what hour of the day. Start counting in your mind now and interrupt me when in your mind the hours... Okay. How many hours? How many hours? Seven. Carol, I wish somebody were here. Can you lean over and tell what time I said? (laughs) Your watch says seven. Seven o'clock. I literally said it to seven, and I almost said it to six, and I changed my mind. Isn't that fascinating? That's, that's amazing. The amazing Kreskin. Along with Carol and Kreskin, there was somebody else in the studio that day. It was me. I saw the whole thing. Producer Kent Hoffman. Kent was actually the reason all this was happening. He had booked the interview with Kreskin that day. In doing so, though he had no idea at the time... Kent had just become a member of a very special club that orbits Kreskin. A club that has nothing to do with mind reading and everything to do with Christmas. 
I'm AC Rowe, and this is The Doc Project. Today, two stories about Christmas traditions. Coming up, regular Doc Project contributor Bob Kerr on the subtle art, or perhaps war, of gift-giving. But first, the story of a radio producer, a mentalist, and an incredibly unlikely Christmas tradition, one that spans the globe and goes back decades, and that Kent had just become a part of. Kent Hoffman, we'll take it from here. We'll start back in 2009. Kreskin had a new book out at the time called Kreskin Confidential. I thought that was a great reason to book him for an interview on As It Happens. I still have no idea how he knew Carol was thinking 7 o'clock. Besides reading Carol's thoughts, it's hard to describe what Kreskin does. One of the highlights of his stage show is that he has his fee for the night's performance hidden somewhere in the theater by a committee made up of about half a dozen audience members picked at random. He then uses his thought-reading abilities to figure out where his check is hidden. If he fails to find it, he doesn't get paid. Kreskin says that out of probably 6,000 occasions, he's not been able to find his check only 11 times. Here's how he described his work to Carol that day. You know, I use the term mentalist uh, because what I do deals with the mind. It deals with how people think. It isn't a magic act. It's a, a, I, The essence of what I do is capturing the mind. Kreskin first captured my mind when I was a kid, so it was kind of a thrill to meet him that day. He was friendly and charismatic and a bit eccentric, exactly what you'd expect from a celebrity mentalist. He's also well-known for his vigorous handshake, and Carol and I both experienced it for ourselves. I have an energetic handshake. It's, it's become like... Yes, I noticed. I'm, <laughs> I'm, I'm still trying to get my shoulder back into shape here. And, of course, Regis, who... That Regis. The Regis. The late, great Regis Philbin. He said, you know, if you're around Kreskin, you really need the services of a chiropractor... I didn't end up needing a chiropractor, but I completely agree with Carol, and I suppose Regis, it's a powerful handshake. The first time I saw Kreskin was on TV in the 1970s. The Canadian TV show was called The Amazing World of Kreskin. I remember watching it. It was pretty far out. The interesting thing is that man developed science and philosophy because of his consuming passion in his search to find new dimensions. Welcome to the amazing world of Kreskin. Ladies and gentlemen, Kreskin. Do I believe in the supernatural? Well, of course, the show is not designed to foster belief in supernatural phenomena. I would say only in this way. I think the supernatural is the natural, not yet understood. Supernatural phenomena? New dimensions? Pretty mind-blowing stuff when you're seven years old. But what really struck me, even at that age, was that Kreskin really knew how to work a crowd. Thank you for standing, man. Would you stand, please? I've never met you before, have I? Why were you thinking about Quebec? We were, well, it was Quebec City, and we were there a couple of years ago. A couple of years ago. One of my favorite cities. <laughs> favorite cities. Does the month of September mean anything to you? Yes, that's my birthday. September the 28th? Right. September the 28th is correct. What does 403 mean to you? Social insurance number. <laughs> Social insurance. Now, I'm not that familiar with them. How many more digits would that be? Six. A total of Next six. Next to three? Yes. 
I cannot get the next digit. What is it, ma'am, after the three? The zero. A zero. Then another, another three? Yes. And Kreskin gets the next number right. Uh-huh. And the next. Right. So, yeah, even though this clip is over 40 years old and the random audience member is not identified, I've decided not to broadcast her full social insurance number. But it's wild to watch. Here's the finish. Last an eight. Right. Thank you very, very much. Thank you, folks, very, very much. Thank you. We will be back, folks. Now, this was not considered identity theft in the 1970s, but rather a demonstration of one of Kreskin's amazing feats as a mentalist. But this story is not really about what makes Kreskin amazing. This is more of a Christmas miracle. The As It Happens interview aired in the spring of 2009, and it's a great memory. I still have Kreskin's business card somewhere that says, even now, I know what you are thinking. But it was one interview for one day's program, and by the next day I moved on to other stories. Seven months later, just a few weeks before Christmas, I got some mail at work from Kreskin, Inc. in West Caldwell, New Jersey. I quickly opened it. It was a Christmas card from The Amazing Kreskin. I thought it was a nice gesture, and after showing it to all my colleagues at As It Happens, I took it home to display on my mantle, you know, to make sure Santa could see it. But the story doesn't end there. The next year, I got another Christmas card from Kreskin, and another one the following year, and another, and another. I don't even work for As It Happens anymore, but since that interview aired, I've received a Christmas card from the amazing Kreskin every single year for a decade now. The cards are always beautifully printed with the lettering in a delicate cursive font. They often depict the scene at the manger, or angels, or snow-covered villages. The verse is usually a traditional Christmas message, reflecting on the true meaning of Christmas, the beauty of the season, or peace and happiness. There's nothing that would really hint that the card comes from a celebrity mentalist. However, one year, part of the verse read, My best thoughts for an especially happy new year. On second glance, I realized that the ESP in especially was capitalized. A season's greeting that quietly made mention of the extrasensory powers of the mind. The cards are professionally printed and likely sent out by his assistant. So even though there's nothing obviously personal about them, there's a real personal vibe to them that's hard to pin down. I feel like I'm the only person who gets one and I look forward to them every year. My CBC colleagues and my family always ask if I've gotten my card from Kreskin yet. They're now a big part of my holiday ritual. A few years ago, I decided to send a Christmas card and a letter back to Kreskin, but I have no idea if he ever saw it. In the note, I thanked him for continuing to send me the cards, and just for fun, I told him that I planned to have his card hidden under a chair at our family Christmas dinner. If I didn't manage to find it, I wouldn't get to eat. But, you know, I like Christmas dinner a little bit too much to ever follow through on such a promise since I really have no thought-reading abilities. But all joking aside, I often wonder, if he's sending me an annual Christmas card, a guy who booked him for one interview a decade ago, who else is on Kreskin's Christmas card list? And are they as happy about receiving these cards as I am? A quick search on social media revealed lots of people who get these cards from Kreskin. 
including some of my CBC colleagues. I got my first Kreskin Christmas card the first Christmas after I had booked the interview. Heather Barrett is a CBC host and producer in St. John's, and she got on Kreskin's mailing list much the same way I did, by booking him for an interview. She was working on the local radio noon show at the time. And I remember Anne Budgel, the host I worked with at the time, got one too. And I remember we both opened these envelopes, and they were, you know, the largest Christmas cards. And they were beautiful. They were on really, you know, nice thick paper, embossed, I believe, maybe with some gold around it. Like, they were really fancy Christmas cards. And we just thought this was a really gentlemanly thing to do, like to follow up a normal everyday work transaction with a Christmas card. And like me, it wasn't just the one card. I think I've gotten a card every year since. My Kreskin cards have always reached me before Christmas. Some of my friends at As It Happens watch for the card's arrival and like to bring it to me. Like the first gift of Christmas. But some of Heather's cards have taken a bit of a roundabout route. Like the arrival of the Kreskin Christmas card used to be a perfect beginning to the Christmas season. But sometimes it would arrive in the new year because it had been, you know, rerouted to Ottawa or Moncton or something. And this is the first year that I have not yet received a Kreskin Christmas card. But I have faith. Yeah, it's out there somewhere. It's out there and it will come to me. Whenever it arrives, for Heather, it's well worth the wait. I think I've probably booked thousands of interviews for radio hosts over my working life. And you don't really expect to get thanked for it. The fact that The Amazing Crescent has taken time to notice the person who's doing that kind of behind-the-scenes job, who generally your job is to not be noticed, is really incredibly considerate. Of course, it's not just journalists who book interviews with Kreskin who get these cards. Uh, my name is Lizzie Shanks. My name is Brandon Scott Bashara. Lizzie and Brandon share a very unique connection to Kreskin. We wrote a song for Kreskin 22 years ago 22 now. 22 years ago, yeah. The song was called The Amazing. I don't know you We've never met before Brandon and I are writing partners, music writing partners, and uh, we had a group called Bashera, um, and he created this piece, and um, he said that he had created it because his mom used to dress him like Kreskin. When I first arrived uh, to Canada, uh, because I was uh, Australian, this infant came over here and didn't have television, and the first show I ever saw was The Amazing Kreskin, and I went, wow. He's amazing. And uh, I found some old pictures of myself during that period. And my mom was dressing me <laughs> as Kreskin with the same haircut, <laughs> the same horn room glasses. And uh, when I write, I'm an instrumentalist. I had this experience with Kreskin in mind. So the piece I was writing instrumentally was very unusual. A lot of um, not common types and it's just very quirky. Then Lizzie Shanks got to work on the lyrics for the fashion-inspired Kreskin song. Hide my feet. That's not gonna be a problem for me. Locate with my super size. 
you know, when you hear it, you know it's the perfect song for Kreskin and the quirkiness, as Brandon was saying. So I didn't know a ton about him. I just thought, oh, I should really educate myself as to what this man is all about. And next thing I know, she's read all his books. Um, <laughs> lyrically, she's very accurate. And then one time she says, wouldn't it be great to have Kreskin come up and uh, open up our CD release? I'm, I'm, I'm laughing. Oh, like that's going to happen. Next thing you know, she she uh, tracked him down. And well, it was a little bit more than next thing you know. <laughs> it was a little more involved than that. But uh, it wasn't really. We didn't do it um, to get media we did it because it was actually um you know mm-hmm. it seemed like well we should get in touch with because he would probably really like this song I that was, really happy that was all it was we yeah. wanted to, sh- to let him hear the song Kreskin loved the tribute song and ended up opening for Bashera at the release of their album Serial Suits at Toronto's Glen Gould studio in 1998 because Lizzie and Brandon got to spend a bit of time with Kreskin that night I was curious about what they could tell me about Kreskin, the person. I would say extremely warm. Um, he just had a, a completely interesting energy around him, I would say. Caffeinated, definitely. <laughs> yeah, yeah, <laughs> but but very personable and uh, and generous, kind. Yeah, you know? really appreciative. I was, really I was appreciative person. And that, yeah. that handshake of his is epic. Mm-hmm, it is. Yeah. And hugs. Was, and hugs. And, epic and genuine. Hugs. Yeah. And he did say to me afterwards, he goes, you nailed it, lady. <laughs> <laughs> so I really, it, it felt good. Yeah, it I never had really the heart good. to tell him that, you know, well, it was my mom dressed me like you, but not. <laughs> well, it started <laughs> off as one thing, it became yeah. another. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Mr. Kreskin. Of course, writing a song about Kreskin means that Lizzie and Brandon, and all the members of their band Bashera, also gained a permanent place on Kreskin's Christmas card list over two decades ago. 1998. Yeah. And it was wonderful. I thought, oh, how thoughtful. That was and a big surprise. I know. Yeah. It was amazing. And then 1999. Wow. <laughs> and then for the, the next 22 years. Lizzie and Brandon always appreciate the yearly reminder of their special connection to Kreskin. It's so nice to have someone do something that just remembers a bit of the past, you know? And, and it's just, I think it's just a really courteous, lovely thing to do. I, I really like getting any mail. <laughs> Other than bills, you mean? <laughs> It's it's very personal and very unique because part of me goes, oh, yeah, I got a Christmas card for Kresk. And people go, what? I said, yeah, this is what he does. Mm-hmm. And this is what he does. At a time when people send fewer and fewer Christmas cards, Kreskin not only continues to send them, but continues to add to his mailing list year after year. It was great to have a chance to speak to other recipients of these cards who also believe these cards are special. When I first did that search on social media for Kreskin Christmas cards, I found dozens of people who posted about these cards. Every single one of them proud to be a member of this quirky Christmas card club, posting messages like, It wouldn't be the holidays if I didn't get my Kreskin card. How did the amazing Kreskin know I wanted a Christmas card from him? And 
the Christmas season can officially start, I got my yearly card from Creskin. Carrie Speckman, who's a writer and card recipient from Jacksonville, Florida, told me by email that after interviewing Creskin and seeing his show, she wound up being part of his act. It was incredible. What a sweet man. And of course, she still gets her Christmas card year after year. But there's still one person I really wanted to talk to about these cards. Hello, Mr. Creskin. Ken, just say Creskin. Don't say Mr. Creskin. Okay. (laughs) The last time we spoke was about 10 years ago, huh, Ken? That's right. So first of all, I, I really want to thank you for sending me a Christmas card every single year for the last decade. I, I look forward to getting them every year, and I still have all 10 of them, and they're, they're actually right here in front of me at the moment. Oh, so. oh my gosh. So do you know how many people are, are on your Christmas card list? Oh, it's uh, over 2,000. Over 2,000. The Amazing Creskin sends out over 2,000 Christmas cards every year. So why do you still send out so many Christmas cards? Because I uh, I, I love uh, the holiday and uh, the and people in different ways have touched touched my life uh, as you have, and I don't forget people. I, I really don't. Now on the surface, it might seem like these Christmas cards are really just good PR, Creskin's version of a press release. But after getting these cards for more than ten years now, I really don't think so. Anyone who sends out over 2,000 Christmas cards must sincerely like Christmas and really like people. So it was no surprise to find out that Creskin's own Christmas celebration is somewhat larger than life. And Christmas Eve is, uh, is legendary in my life. Every Christmas Eve now from, oh, I don't know, 50 years, 40, 50 years, my, my, my folks were alive, I, would, I did it then and I do it now, I have a group come over people I'm very close to. I do a performance for them for time for reflection and, and, and to think about people, which we should all be around, but think about people who maybe are uh, more alone now and need, need some kind of contact communication, which is why I bring people in, uh, many of whom are no longer their husbands or their wives are passed on and what have you. It has a, a very special meaning to me with the idea that they're coming to uh, sit and enjoy my performance, eat and talk together, and then the moment that everybody has looked for, and that is we set aside one hour where everybody gets their music sheets and I play the piano and they sing uh, Christmas music. Now I cannot get everybody in my house at one time, 20, 20 or so people in the same room. So I have four Christmas Eves every year. It's been very incredibly special in my, and it will never change. I want to repeat what he just said. Creskin celebrates Christmas Eve on four different nights. Just like the Christmas cards where he adds more people to his mailing list as they come into his life, Creskin just adds more and more gatherings so that everyone can join in. Creskin clearly has a gift for connecting with people and loves performing. So I wanted to get a sense of his life and work as a mentalist and how it ties in with all this. It isn't really about if he's able to read people's thoughts on stage. I learned that it's the human connection that's really important to him. What does it feel like to read someone's mind? I mean, it seems to me like a, like a rather intimate connection. It is a very, you know, you, you said something very, very significant. And I'm so glad uh, that you brought this up uh, in your in the way you did, uh, Kent, because uh, I find we're not embracing 
each other's to the degree that we did not too many years ago, because one of the greatest phenomena factors in my life and my career, and the word I'm talking about is empathy. And empathy is not just understanding the way a person is or why they're acting the way they are and all of that jazz. Empathy is a gift ability to feel the way someone else feels. I think it's this idea of empathy that has a lot to do with why Kreskin sends out so many cards. He really doesn't want people to feel forgotten. I think it's why getting these cards from Kreskin has always connected with me in such a powerful way. It reawakens memories, it reawakens experiences, and the opportunity to reflect upon some joyful moments or special moments or meaningful moments. I I want people to realize that I have not forgotten them. Understand with some 2,000 Christmas cards, I look at every single, my cards are all the same because I pick a card, I look at every single card before it goes out. It It takes weeks. Because sometimes I'm only home for a weekend or so forth, and my, my secretaries put in a, in a box the cards that were addressed up to that point. So I look at every single card, because in so many cases, well, I'll, I'll think of something about the person and say, oh, my God, uh, you know, I remember that person had, had this interest in their life. I wonder if it came about or if the youngster went into that kind of field that they were looking into. So uh, can, wouldn't you be interested in, in reawakening some experiences like that? Yeah, exactly, right? And and it's funny you, you say that about looking at every single card. It's because these, I know I'm on a big mailing list, but these cards have always felt really personal to me, and now I understand why. Yes, and they really are. They really are. That's so neat that you say that. Yes, they. that's a nice, that's, that's a beautiful, beautiful thought. I mean, to me, this idea of sending a Christmas card being all about reawakening good memories and experiences is a beautiful thought, especially this year. I wonder if Kreskin will always keep sending out Christmas cards. Oh, yes. Are you kidding me? I, uh, I start looking for a new card uh, the day or uh, about a month, a month after Christmas because I, oh, the companies all send me their cards. <laughs> you should see the amount of cards that I get. And they're not sending me to wish me a Merry Christmas. They're sending me to sell me a batch of cards. <laughs> well, Kreskin, I've been, uh, I watched you on TV when I was probably seven years old and I've always sort of known about your career and followed you and I I really want to thank you for taking the time to speak to me today and for sending me these cards all these years and and I want to wish you an amazing Christmas. Well, well, I like that and then Ken, I I gotta tell you Ken, sometime when I'm touring Canada, if I'm in your area, you gotta let me know because I will kind of have you come by and who knows, you may participate in something that takes place during my performance. Good to talk to you, Ken, and let's keep in touch, and hopefully we'll see each other before long, okay? Now, I won't say goodbye. In the spirit of broadcasting, let's just say to be continued. To be continued, Kreskin. See you then. Thanks, Ken. All right, take care. Thanks. Thank you, Ken. Bye. After talking with Kreskin, I I took a look at all the cards he sent me over the years, and and I came across one that read, there's something about actually holding a card, enabling one to pause and experience, for a few quiet moments, the joy and inner peace of Christmas. I totally agree. I suggest you take the time to send a card to someone you haven't been in touch with for a while. I'm no mentalist, but I know they'll be amazed to hear from you. 
thank you. You have no idea how important they've been to us. It makes, makes me feel a bit special. Yeah. The other interesting thing about the cards is that they're all generally of the religious Christmas variety. And I thought just the fact that he was wearing, in a way, on his sleeve, what he felt the meaning of Christmas was, was, was really touching. It's about connection to all people. To me, he's showing us how we're supposed to be in the world. Is you know, Once you know somebody and you've had a good relationship with them, foster that whatever way that is. And for him, it's Christmas cards. For me, it's a fashion statement. <laughs> Merry Christmas, Creskin. I hope you have a wonderful holiday season, and I hope you're having a happy and full life. Mr. Creskin, you are amazing. Merry Christmas. Merry Christmas, Mr. Creskin. Kent Hoffman, and The Amazing Kreskin. That doc was produced by Kent. It was edited by Mira Bertwintonic and me, AC Rowe. And we have an update. CBC's Heather Barrett, she got her card. It showed up in St. John's, Newfoundland a few months after she and Kent spoke. She sent Kent an email saying, My Kreskin Christmas card just arrived. It was addressed to me via CBC Ottawa for some reason. I had faith it would arrive. Eh, What's a few provinces between friends? To see a photo of Heather's card, some shots of Kreskin, and of course a festive picture of Kent posing with a decade's worth of Kreskin Christmas cards, head to our website. We're at cbc.ca slash docproject. Coming up. You know that gift you didn't want, didn't ask for, and for the life of you can't understand why it was given to you? After the break, Bob Kerr confronts his inexplicable gift giver, his mom. I'm Jonathan Goldstein, host of Wiretab. Each week you're invited to listen in on my telephone conversations, whether funny, sad, wistful, or even slightly strange. You never know just what you might hear on Wiretab. Uh, I mean, I knew you had a show. I just, I just didn't think that people actually listened to it. Howard, That's you... the breath of your genius, Jonathan. It's not just that you're funny, but you can be cripplingly, poignantly depressing. The Wiretap Archives, available on CBC Listen, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and wherever you get your podcasts. I would like to introduce this next story with a poem. Christmas, Christmas, time is here. Time for joy and time for pretending you like the gifts your loved ones have given you even though they are incomprehensible. You smile on the outside as you die on the in, unwrapping Amazon packaging to reveal a diet cookbook, a sham wow, and a souvenir hat with a dorsal fin. Florida is for lovers. The truth will hurt their feelings and ruin this festive day. So you smile and grin and bear it. The second you get off this Zoom call with your entire extended family, you'll post it all on eBay. Or maybe stuff it in the back of the closet behind your camping gear. Either way you know, you'll do it all again next year. 
it's a work in progress, okay? And hey, this year, if it meant we'd actually get to see our families in person, I bet any one of us would gladly wear a dorsal fin hat. Gift giving. It is tricky business. The right gift says what you hope it does. I love you, I see you, I listen, or even just a solid, I have a vague grasp of who you are. And you might think you've found the perfect gift, but that's where it gets tricky. Because nine times out of 10, even if you're way off the mark, you'll get a smile and a, oh, it's great, thanks. This is something regular Doc Project contributor Bob Kerr and his mom, Lorraine Kerr, have been muddling through for most of Bob's life. The art of a good gift. And last year, they finally had a frank conversation about where, for Bob, it's all gone wrong. And Bob recorded the whole thing. So, prologue, Bob Kerr is an awkward man. Here's Bob. Um, it's just a little something. And so I wanted to start the interview with our, a sort of a secret gift. Not really though. Um, I don't care if you tell anybody, but it's not something that, uh, uh, was in the original plans, but then it turned out that way. It's nothing big. I am blowing it up, but just check it out. That's me surprising my mom with an early Christmas present. I'm fumbling over myself because, well, I'm awkward like that. I've never been great with gifts. Do you remember uh, any gifts that I got you guys when I was a kid? Yeah, I, got, I still keep, I have it still, like, a, I remember the Christmas bell. The Christmas bell, I don't know what that is. It's out there in my stove. Did I make it in class? No, you, you bought it. I bought a bell? Yeah, it's a Christmas bell. It's got, a, um, it's, it's, it does make noise. It's a Christmas bell. That thing on the stove for 30 years was my doing? What I do remember is buying you a two liter bottle of Coke and a bag of chips. <laughs> We probably got drink real fast and ate fast then too. <laughs> yeah. That was actually the Christmas that the tree fell down twice. Oh, I remember that. Yeah, that was a bad year. <laughs> as bad as my gifts were, I was a kid. Over the years, my mom gave me some gifts that were inexplicable. Gifts that made you go, hmm... It's hard to tell someone you didn't like their present. It feels ungrateful, but it's not about gratitude. To me, giving a gift should come with a message. It says to someone, I see you. And for 40 years, I've been trying to figure out who exactly was mom seeing. So now, I'm going to ask her. And the confusing thing is, when I was a kid, her gifts were gangbusters. Chapter 1. The Magical Childhood Gift Years When I was young, 
My parents were particularly great at giving gifts. I remember gushing with joy when I got a Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtle action figure. Michelangelo, obviously. Then there was a time I got so giddy when my brothers and I walked into the kitchen and found a bumper pool table. And then there was a time I literally jumped with joy when I got a Super Mario 3 Nintendo game. How are my parents so good at the gift racket? Well, I was watch what you were watching like on TV and like the one year you got those Transformer outfits. Um, and then you got into He-Man. So you got figurines for that and the Transformer figurines. and Yeah, I just watched what you did. You all did and what you were interested in. And that's I would try and get something in that area. One Christmas stood out where a gift caused me to pretty much lose my mind. Do you remember the gift when I was a kid that I was the most excited by? That um, piano type thing? Yeah. Yeah. An organ? What is it? I don't know. It was a Casio keyboard, and I think it had the Michael Jackson songbook in it. Oh, is that right? I didn't know that. Yeah, but I could barely contain myself when I got that thing. (laughs) Yeah. Chapter 2. The Big Gift You Have to Wait For As I get older, now a high school student, money gets tighter in the household. I could always tell that the holiday season was officially upon us when mom would announce, we're not going to have a big Christmas this year, so lower your expectations. It was like her State of the Union address. But it works. I lower my expectations, and I'm never disappointed. To try and keep things fair, mom and dad decide that one of us per year would get a gift that cost a bit more than everyone else's. I patiently wait my turn, watching as my brothers get these big gifts. Do you remember um, the gifts that John or Chad got during that time? Like when it was their turn? I remember, well, Chad got the... um thing to go in his bedroom kind of like a wardrobe thing but he could put his the tv in there and that he got an entertainment unit for his bedroom a 15 year old with a full home theater the next year my younger brother john gets a paintball gun along with paint pellets everyone whoops and hollers when he fires it from the living room into the backyard hitting the metal door of our steel shed it's awesome when my year comes up I rack over in my brain what I could possibly receive for Christmas. A new electric guitar? Maybe a new TV for my bedroom? I'm 19, so... (gasps) Could it be my own car? After we're done tearing open our regular presents, I'm given a small wrapped box. Oh my god, I think. It's a car key. With shaking hands, I unwrap the box. It's a small blue felt box. I hold it there, admiring the fabric. Nice box, I think to myself. I open it, and inside is a piece of paper. My heart sinks. It's a gift certificate. It's for... a ring. A ring? Now I know how the hockey sweater kid felt. Right. Okay, I remember the ring. This 
is not what I had in mind. And what's stranger still is that it actually isn't the first time my mother had given me jewelry. When I was 10 years old, my brothers and I got necklaces with little crosses on them. We weren't the most religious family, but my grandparents were. So we did our best to keep up appearances. At first, I actually like wearing the necklace. It's a nice addition to my wardrobe, which is mainly sweatpants and hoodies. I put it on constantly for several weeks. I probably look like an altar boy, but I feel like a gangster. But then one day, I forget it on my dresser. Same goes for the next day, and the day after that. Soon, the necklace lives in my sock drawer to be completely forgotten to time. Several years later, Mom gets us rings made of sterling silver with a marbly-looking gem on top. I'm not sure I actually like it, but just like the necklace, I start wearing it all the time. Then I get a painful, itchy rash on my finger where the ring is. I can't stop scratching it. And to add to my woes, the skin on my finger turns green. I don't get it, Mom says with a puzzled expression. They said it was made of real sterling silver. The ring is rested from my poor discolored finger and stays off. As far as I'm concerned, my jewelry days are over. For the next seven years, I do not wear a stitch of jewelry. I grow up, I change, I covet electric guitars and cars. So then, at 19, my big Christmas year, you can imagine my surprise, and I'm sad to say, disappointment. When I open my big gift, and it is a decidedly non-car ring. Not even a ring. A gift certificate for a ring. And I got it at a place in, in the mall. I remember opening the box and looking at it. Reading the gift certificate several times. Yep, it was a gift certificate for a ring, all right. Oh, wow, I say, mustering up as much enthusiasm as I can. Thanks, guys. I give my parents a hug, plastering on a smile. But on the inside, I'm crushed. Not only is it something I don't really want, but it's a gift certificate for something I don't really want. Which means I have to go into town and pick up the thing I want most of the things I don't really want. When mom takes me into town, I pick out the least offensive thing I can. I'm graduating that year, so I choose a silver class ring with a large red gem in it that says grad 19 on the left and grad 99 on the right, as in class of 99. The name of my high school frames the stone, Lambton Collegiate Central. I wear it for several weeks. After all, it's my big gift, so I aim to get as much mileage in as I can. But once again, my finger gets sweaty and itchy. I remember how the other ring turned my finger green, and I don't even hesitate this time. I hide it away in the corner of my sock drawer, where it rooms with my necklace. Chapter 3. The Gag Gift Years As I get older and move to Toronto to pursue my dreams of comedy and impoverished living, the Christmas gifts, perhaps to match my comedy pursuits, get more... Whimsical. Who 
risen a pineapple under the sea. My mother starts giving me a SpongeBob SquarePants themed gift every year. One year, it's a SpongeBob deck of cards. Another year, it's a SpongeBob plush toy. Then, a giant SpongeBob tin of popcorn. Now, I do like SpongeBob SquarePants. But it's not like I ever sat down with mom and espoused the virtues of Squidward, or how I thought that Plankton was the perfect comedy foil. No, she gets me these gifts because Bob is in the name. They're cute little gag gifts. In fact, I creatively convert the SpongeBob popcorn tin into my office garbage can. After all, SpongeBob himself was pretty resourceful. He lived in a pineapple under the sea. But as endearing as they are, I find myself wondering, does mom have any idea who I am? Chapter four, the gift I just had to have. About 15 years ago, we decide that we're going to stop giving gifts. My parents feel that gifts should be more for the grandkids and less for us. And I find myself readily agreeing. At the time, I'm working odd jobs, and a temp worker's salary in Toronto hasn't been the financial blowout I was hoping it to be. I'm relieved to be out of the gift-giving cycle. So begins the first of several years where we mostly have a giftless Christmas. But then, 2008. That year, I'm at my parents' house, visiting for the holidays. As I walk out of my bedroom and head downstairs, My mother pulls me aside. I know we're not supposed to get each other anything, but I thought you should have this, she says. I'm flabbergasted. Okay, I say. I didn't expect anything, so I have no idea what mom has in mind. But it must be something so crazy important that I had to have it. She pulls me into her room. And then you showed it to me, and do you remember what it was? Jewelry box. (laughs) Like a men's jewelry thing. A men's jewelry box, yeah. And it's a nice jewelry box. A jewelry box. At the time of receiving the jewelry box, I am wearing about zero pieces of jewelry. Oh, wow. Thanks, Mom, I say. I'm happy to receive it, but I am so lost. What is going on? Um, and I was very appreciative, but I was also very confused. (laughs) Like when you saw this jewelry box, what, what part of the jewelry box was it that you were like, uh, I, I, Bob needs to have this. I don't know to tell you the truth. I don't know. It just saw, I saw it and I thought I get it for you. Okay, I because I I felt like I was missing I was missing the mark on everything. <laughs> no, it's not even that you were missing the mark. It, well, that felt like it felt like because uh, I I wasn't wearing jewelry. I I had no interest in jewelry, and then I and then you made a point to give me this jewelry box, and so it 
it made me confused as to like does who does mom think i am (laughs) i know who you were (laughs) really because it feels like she thinks i'm elton john seriously though why do i have this jewelry box well i just like that type of thing not only like they a lot of people don't use it for jewelry. They throw change in it. Like men, they throw change in it, or they put their wallet in there when they take it out of their pants. Or I wasn't looking at it as a jewelry, like for jewelry, just for stuff for you to put stuff in. It's nice looking, but it's just impersonal. She might as well have pulled me aside and said, "Hey, I know we're not supposed to get each other anything, but I really wanted you to have this DVD copy of Shakespeare in Love." Chapter 5. A Pendant for Your Thoughts. The funny thing is, despite the fact that I have no interest in jewelry, I can't ever seem to escape it. What did, did you get a necklace when, like, uh, from when your dad died? In 2015, my dad is diagnosed with terminal cancer. Near the end of his life, Mom tells us that we have the option to get necklaces or keychains with a pendant that's filled with some of his ashes. I look over at Dad, feeling awkward about the conversation, but he seems unfazed by it all. His approach to dying is characteristically zen. Mom asks me if I want Dad's ashes put in anything, no pressure. Personally, I prefer nothing at all, but the subtext I project on her is, your brothers are getting one. I'm getting one, so are you with us or not? And I am, 100%. Dad's imminent death bonds me to my family like never before. Plus, my dad is right there. Like, what am I supposed to do? Reject his ashes to his face? Come on. My initial instinct is to go for the keychain, but I I recently lost my keys in Costa Rica, so I'm a little gun-shy on that option. So, with a deep sigh, I order the necklace. Here we go again. The necklace arrives a week after Dad dies. The pendant holding Dad's ashes is a musical note. Dad and I bonded over guitar gods like Jimi Hendrix and Jimmy Page. Or maybe we just bonded over guys named Jimmy. I put it around my neck. It's the first time I've worn a necklace in 25 years. And, I gotta say, I don't hate it. It feels nice. A little morbid, sure, but it helps me feel connected to my dad. So I have it on every single day. I wear it to dad's celebration of life. I wear it when I fly to Halifax to work on this hour as 22 minutes. I wear it on stage doing stand-up. And then... One day, as I'm rushing out of my apartment, I forget to put it on. And I forget again the day after that. And the day after that. Now, talking with my mom, I have a confession to make. I actually don't know where it is right now. It's not that I've lost it. It's somewhere. I just don't know where. Yeah, like, I mean... It's how you... It's what you want to do with it or look at it. Like, you know, it's... it's, um, it's uh, none of my business, really. Um, 
Well, yeah, it's nobody's. If but if I, yeah. Like I, I, I wouldn't. I would not be upset with you. Yeah. I don't wear mine either. I'm afraid of losing it. <laughs> to me, it's just, um, it's just a thing. Yeah. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? It's not dad. It's this, the stuff that I think of w- with dad is not something that I could lose. No. Yeah. Yeah. I end up finding it in the back of my nightstand drawer. I sigh with relief. Even if it is a piece of jewelry that I rarely wear, I don't want to lose it. My dad's in there after all. And now I realize I actually have the perfect place for it. I open up my jewelry box. It's been a long time since I looked in this thing. It's a hodgepodge of personal history. I root around, finding some guitar picks, baseball cards, an old bank book from 2000. I flip through the bank book and see that the majority of my spending in 2000 was gas for my car. But I can also tell you the precise time and place I bought Radiohead's Kid A and for how much. $20.69. There's a small plastic pink pig that my younger brother gave to me at a pig roast when I was eight and he was seven. Whether my mom knew it or not, the jewelry box has become an important place for my small sentimental hoarding. When I look at these things, a memory flashes across my mind. It's like a time capsule of my life. And then I see it. My class ring. I hold it up. It's completely black. Uh, <laughs> I, I guess I was really surprised because I wasn't particularly someone who wore jewelry. Yeah. Yeah, and it was like it was like either I don't know 150 bucks or 200 bucks. Like it was a lot of money. Or maybe I don't know. I don't remember. But it was your graduation ring, so. Um right, and there was like an importance to us. Both my parents dropped out of high school. It was vital to them that their own children not go down that same path. It was yeah, it was important that that's like we wanted you to go through school, graduate, and hopefully go on to college or university, whatever you wanted. But yeah, it was important for us that you graduate. So it would have been my for my grad ring. Yeah. Okay, so that ring was more. That ring was like, yeah. I and I guess I never put that together. Uh, was it like a, a matter of pride for you? Yeah, well, for both of us, both your father and I. Right. I put the class ring back in the jewelry box and put Dad's necklace beside it. I'm glad that I have somewhere safe to keep them. Thanks, Mom. Epilogue. The Ghost of Christmas Presents. Gifts represent what you know of that person, what you think they would like or need. As a child, I watched my favorite shows and movies in the family room, and I chatted relentlessly about things that I loved, what I wanted to do, and who I wanted to be. The door to the bedroom that I shared with my younger brother John was always open, revealing a mess of Archie comics, action figures, and cassette tapes. And my mom picked up on this. 
like she said. I just watched what you did, you all did, and what you were interested in, and that's, I would try and get something in that area. Once I was big enough to get my own room, I had my own television and VCR, most likely gifts themselves. My door was always closed. I became more quiet, more reserved. I stopped talking about the things I loved. As I got older, I began to wonder if mom knew me, really. That was always what confused me about the running theme of jewelry. I don't care for it, yet somehow it keeps popping up. It felt like I was getting jewelry even though I didn't really like jewelry. Well, you should have said something, then we wouldn't have bought any more jewelry. <laughs> I know, and I think that's part of my problem. The problem here is, is that, uh, especially the older I got, the more I kept to myself. So it would have made it increasingly tougher to even know what I liked. Yeah. It wasn't about my mom losing touch with me. It was about me not letting her in. My poor mom had to figure out on her own what I liked without any clues. Well, maybe, at least as a son, I'm starting to pick up on a few clues myself. It's, it's nothing big. I am blowing it up, but just check it out. Oh, for heaven's sakes. Thank you very much. <laughs> How did you get this? What I gave my mom was a signed photo of the cast of Murdoch Mysteries. I got it from Johnny Harris, one of the show's stars, when I was working with him on his traveling comedy series, Still Standing. I said to Johnny, I was like, Johnny, I, I don't want to make this weird. Oh, yeah. And I said, I don't want to make this weird, but my mom is a big fan of yours, and she loves Murdoch Mysteries. And he said, one second. And he gave you this? And so that's, he signed that. Yeah. Wow, thank you very much. It means a lot to me. Good. I'm glad you like it. Yeah, I do. I gotta get a frame for it now. Okay. Well, I love you, Mom. I love you, too. Thank you. Okay. <laughs> Merry Christmas. There you go. Merry Christmas. <laughs> Thank you, Detective Murdoch and Dr. Ogden. Merry Christmas. We're not gonna find him tonight, Murdoch. We'll pick it up after the holidays. Merry Christmas, sir. Quite. Bob Kerr. That doc was produced by Bob Kerr and Jennifer Warren. It was edited by me, AC Rowe, and mixed with Mark Apollonio. To see photos of Kerr family Christmases from days gone by, Bob's jewelry slash treasure box, as well as some of the pieces from his somewhat reluctant jewelry collection, head to our website. We're at cbc.ca slash docproject. That's all for us this week. The Doc Project is produced by Julia Poggle, Tanera McLean, Sherry Okeke, Mark Apollonio, Allison Cook, and me. Althea Manassin is our digital producer. Our senior producer is Jennifer Warren, and our executive producer is Joan Melanson. I'm AC Rowe. Thanks for listening.
For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.